this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Munib Ali, the co-founder of Blockstack. It is always great to catch up with people who I deem to be incredibly smart, and Munib is one of those people. If you haven't listened to the show from about six or seven months ago, I recorded one with him. We went through his incredible background, and so it was great to catch up. There are pieces of news that are new with Blockstack. Uh, Recently, Blockstack's new consensus mechanism creates new use cases for Bitcoin, and so we talked about that, how this works. There is a consensus that they've created called Proof of Transfer, POX, and in the white paper, for those that are interested, they talk about their working with Bitcoin blockchain, and why do they do that is because they have the opinion that Bitcoin is one of the most secure blockchains out there. And in, I quote, by far the most secure blockchain today is Bitcoin. Blockstack has, since its earliest days, relied on Bitcoin as a mechanism for establishing trust in an open and permissionless network. The Stack 1.0 blockchain, launched in 2018, operates as a virtual blockchain on top of Bitcoin. We continue to believe that Bitcoin can become the flag of technology and that most people will be introduced to cryptocurrencies through Bitcoin. So we had a great conversation about that, how it relates proof of work to proof of stake, how you can build things on there. And over the last six or seven months since we last caught up with Blockstack, they have gone from about 25 to 30 apps on Blockstack now to about 400. It's a pretty big exponential growth. So we talked about some of those apps like Dmail. Um, and so this is a great conversation, catching up with someone who I think is just incredibly smart in the space. But remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Boni Bali, the co-founder of Blockstack. Enjoy. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I am really happy to have Munib Ali, the co-founder of Blockstack, back with us today. Munib, how are you? I'm, I'm great and awesome to be back. So as Munib was talking to me before we started recording, it has been about six months since we've lost caught up, and a lot has happened in that time frame. And so for those that don't know, you can go back. There was a great recording that we had back around May, but Munib... Uh, is, as I said, the co-founder of Blockstack. Blockstack is a software for a user-owned internet with over 360 apps built on top. And so we had a great conversation about centralized versus decentralized, this movement away. And I remember it was a great conversation where I remember back in the day, you would put a floppy disk or a DVD into your computer and it would run a specific platform. And now everything's on the cloud. And so we've had this transitional moment with some, you know, kind of the centralized kind of protocols and apps and all the way to now this kind of world that we live in in Web 2.0 and Munib and his team are effectively trying to really build Web 3 and beyond that. So Munib, it's good to catch up with you. We have a lot to talk about, um, but if you could, for the listeners that have not listened to this uh, one back in May, tell us a little bit about yourself before 
your block stack, what you did, and then we'll get into block stack. And then there is some really new stuff that you guys have been working on um, in terms of a new consensus. It seems that you're working on something called proof of transfer mining with Bitcoin, POX. We're going to talk about that. And so, again, let's just give the listeners who might not have caught the show before just a bit of a background about yourself and then about block stack. And then let's talk about what you guys are up to. Awesome. I'm happy to. So yeah, um, thanks for the intro. I'm Muneeb, uh, co-founder of BlockSack. And I have a background in uh, computer science and distributed systems. So I did a PhD in computer science at Princeton. And BlockStack um, was actually my, my, my PhD thesis, right? So uh, super early in many ways in the crypto space in the sense that Block, BlockStack, the company, along with my co-founder, uh, also from Princeton, an engineer, we started in 2013. So this actually predates Ethereum. So these are the early days of uh, crypto. And the motivation for this is really that, you know, uh, for the past many decades, like our research community, the distributed systems research community, has been trying to upgrade core internet infrastructure, right? And mm-hmm. and they haven't really been able to do that, right? So sometimes I describe Blockstack as the idea that escaped the research lab, right? In the sense that uh, like both me and my co-founder had a very strong feeling that we need to commercialize this. It can't be like an academic exercise where we just talk about these ideas or have a prototype, what we want to do is we make we want to make a real dent on the state of the internet. And there are certain things and, and those things are pretty widely shared, like in the sense that the the fathers of the internet, like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, uh, Wynne Cerf, uh, David Clark, who, who was the chief protocol architect of the internet, they all roughly agree on the shortcomings of the current internet, right? The big challenge is how do you upgrade this massive system or mm-hmm. give people a new one? And then how do all the developers start building uh, on, the, on the new infrastructure? And how do all the users kind of like start using these new applications? So there's several layers of uh, adoption here, right? So the, uh, the, the, the path that we took was a little bit unique in the sense that we raised uh, venture capital. So we went through Y Combinator in 2014. Uh, those of you who know Filecoin, so Juan was actually in the same batch uh, with me, which is a great coincidence. And, um, and we raised venture capital to effectively do R&D work. So the early team, most, most of them comes, uh, come from Princeton. They have, uh, they're like computer scientists, effectively. So it was very R&D focused. We were... Uh, kind of like working on the core infrastructure problems, like the foundational layers, uh, with the goal that, you know, these systems should be able to scale to hundreds of millions of users. And, and then we started rolling out this uh, technology. So in 2017, we, we did our first uh, uh, offering for the, the crypto asset that was around a 47.5 million round mm-hmm. uh, in which a lot of sophisticated investors were able to participate. And yep. then we rolled out our Stacks 1.0 blockchain uh, mm-hmm. in 2018. And 2019, I think this brings us to the timeline where we last talked. And it's, it's interesting, like sometimes I'm talking to people in tech and I tell them that, you know, like you guys understand how tech is fast and then people feel like, you know, tech is fast. And I'm like, take that and do it by 10x when you're talking about crypto. Like in crypto, six months is like a lifetime, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to think back to the days. I believe our SCC offering was not qualified at that time, so I couldn't really talk about it. And that was a big event for the industry, right? Like again, we took this unique approach of being 
not only very uh, transparent, but also uh, work with the regulators to come up with a kind of like a compliant way of doing a public offering, which no one has ever done before. Like imagine the securities regulations have been around since 1933. Mm-hmm. And we, we got a SEC qualification for doing an offering for a crypto asset. So imagine the kind of questions there were uh, from the SEC side about uh, what legal framework is being used you know, are miners kind of like broker dealers? Uh, right. What's the accounting mechanism for these crypto assets? And we have to like work on all, all of that to be able to finally get the qualification, right? And it, 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 it puts us in a unique position where we're like a, you know, 30% company at this time. But in terms of our disclosure requirements or in terms of our filings with the SEC, we operate as if we are a public company. But I think it was a very, very kind of like, um, explicit decision from our side where we believe that such type of disclosure and information sharing is actually good for crypto. It was a landmark moment. Right. So it's, it's, it's basically uh, the, the goal is to reduce information asymmetry between people who are quote unquote project insiders like myself, like I'm sitting on information and people who are, who are uh, public investors. So the public investors can go through our, you know, 180 page SEC uh, filing and know everything there is to learn about uh, about BlockSec. And the one interesting thing is that I think when when companies do such uh, uh, public filings, let's say you're doing an IPO filing, which is like more com- kind of like more comprehensive. This is this was a Reg A uh, 50 million limitation uh, offering, mm-hmm. and but it's similar, right? Like it's a full disclosures, and then companies start getting a lot of questions. Uh, and interestingly, I think. Crypto is not crypto industry is not used to that at all, right? So suddenly you have so much information about this project, and and you know like some people really appreciate that, some people would like take some tiny detail and try to twist it around and 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 try to create controversies. So we, we don't know who you're talking about on that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it, like I think in general, right? Like in crypto, there's a there's a this culture of being very tribal, right? Like everyone's right. is very tribal. They they feel that this is a zero sum game, and they uh, attack each other, so uh, it's it's like now there's so much material available, and this is something that you know I personally had to evolve as a, as a person and, um, and, a, and a leader of the project, where you just have you just ignore people who are just yelling at you on Twitter all the time because they have access to to all this information. You, you know, it's interesting. Someone actually posted a question. You know, they said that they've been watching crypto, and I've been using digital assets more these days because essentially these are digital assets and getting away from the use of crypto. But, you know, someone posited a question on Twitter regarding the interactions on the social media platform in regards to the players in crypto. And they said, well, do you guys all hate each other? Are you guys all at war? And I I basically explained in my position and what I think it, it is, is that you have the Capulets and you have the Montagues from Romeo and Juliet, and they're always warring together. But you know, at the end of the day, it's almost like Woodstock. When you get together at some of these meetups, when you hang out at these conferences that happen on a regular basis these days, everyone kind of gets it that we're all have the same types of you know kind of goals and same type of vision that we're all trying to work on distributed and decentralized systems that we're trying to actually change the narrative from having centralized power and having 
you know, the overlords of data have to know everything about us from, you know, what we order from, you know, you know, say what Amazon to where we move and where we go using maps. And so all of that getting kind of thrown up into a centralized server, we don't really, you know, I think universally, we don't really love that idea. And so the idea of having more of a distributed and decentralized network is something that we all agree on that we're all trying to get to but people have different ideas towards it and then there's always been the war between bitcoin and ethereum and then other consensus protocols and so i'm really interested to hear about this new consensus mechanism that you guys have created because it seems that from what i've been able to read about it and i want to hear more from you is that the new consensus mechanism creates new use cases for bitcoin now in your white paper for this this is really interesting, and I think this is going to, you know, hopefully affect some of those in the Bitcoin camp because it's it says it right here. By far, the most secure blockchain today is Bitcoin. End quote. <laughs> Blockstack has, since its earliest day, relied on Bitcoin as a mechanism for establishing trust in an open and permissionless network. The Stacks 1.0 blockchain, launched in 2008, operates as a virtual blockchain on top of Bitcoin. We continue to believe that Bitcoin can become the flag of technology and that most people will be introduced to cryptocurrencies through Bitcoin. The developer ecosystem around Bitcoin continues to grow. End quote. Done. You see, this is what I'm talking about, is that from the outside end, people think that there's this war between Bitcoin, Ethereum, Blockstack, other different protocols. You're saying it right there. It's right there. So talk to us about what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I think... I think um, for just to finish the thought on the uh, on the kind of like the tribal nature of this, it's it's also the fact. That, so we had a meetup with Balaji uh, in Austin, and he had a very interesting thought that uh, a very small group of people, like just a handful of call it like 10, 20 people, can also dominate uh, conversations on Twitter and this infighting, right? Like, and sometimes those people don't have the right. Like they don't even have a fin- like a financial like a real financial stake. They're just optimizing for likes and visibility, mm-hmm. right? And he had a, biology has a very interesting idea that if you start filtering communities on kind of like proof of uh, proof of like uh, your your uh, contribution to a project or proof of like your financial uh, kind of like anchors in the project suddenly the conversations become very different, right? So like imagine almost like a, like a subreddit where you can only join if you are actively contributing to that project or you care about that project because you've made a large investment in it, right? Mm-hmm. And then I think suddenly the conversations change, but that's a, that's a world we hope we start moving towards uh, and, and, and less, uh, less kind of like travel stuff. But speaking of the travel stuff, here's, here's the interesting thing. What's happening, I completely agree that all the projects they're basically moving towards the same direction. They have the same aspirations. And I think that's why you would think that they should be able to collaborate because you know, we, we are trying to move towards the same uh, dream world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the, like Web3, Web where users are in control and we're not dependent on these, uh, these entities. It's a little bit like you know, in the early days when, uh, when uh, people discovered that, hey, Maybe there's one God and everyone got excited, but then everyone came up with their own God, right? Yeah. And then it's, a, it's, it's a little bit like that. Uh, so what we are saying over here is, and that's a very explicit kind of like decision we have made, that what, what we're noticing is Bitcoin is by far the biggest, most secure blockchain. And then other people are trying to create their own mini islands, right? And they're sometimes doing it uh, using proof of work, right? So it's like a waste of, 
you're, you're reinventing the wheel. You're going from electricity to proof of work again and again on smaller, uh, small and smaller, smaller islands, mm-hmm. right? Whereas what we are saying is you only need to go from electricity to proof of work based cryptocurrency once, once you've made that transition and that proof of work cryptocurrency is there, you can use that to participate in the consensus of new blockchains, right? So the problem that addresses is uh, Bitcoin, that, and, and, and we believe Bitcoin is by far the best, uh, best anchor uh, or reserve cryptocurrency for this because it's by far the most secure, right? So the problem it, 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 it uh, solves is that Bitcoin is secure because it's stable and it doesn't change, right? Bitcoin is secure because it has a limited scripting language and it doesn't have a full kind of like a Turing complete or a more expressive language. Those are features, right? But those features also turn into limitations. That's right. Because you cannot add new things to Bitcoin. It's almost like you you don't, and you don't want to. And I absolutely agree with the design decision that Bitcoin should, should optimize for durability, for stability, for security and not about let's do experiments and change this protocol. And I think the Bitcoin core developers do a great job there, right? Like they, they have been carrying this forward uh, according to this very uh, rational and very careful uh, design principle. Well, this is where we come in. And what we are saying is that that doesn't mean that you cannot have smart contract languages that benefit from the security of Bitcoin. That doesn't mean that Web3 cannot emerge on top of Bitcoin and benefit from the security of Bitcoin, which is like, if you think about it, like how many times you've heard the term Web3 and Bitcoin in the same sentence? Mm-hmm. Like people aren't talking about it, right? Because right. that type of innovation is currently happening on other blo- blockchain ecosystems, right? And I think it's like, like obviously like hardliners in the Bitcoin community wouldn't agree with this, but we should acknowledge that ecosystems like Ethereum uh, and other newer ones are attracting a lot of you know, intellectually curious people who are trying to build interesting things and mm-hmm. they're trying to innovate towards uh, DeFi or they're trying to innovate towards Web3. And we would like to see a healthy developer ecosystem around Bitcoin as well, right? So the way we achieve that is we anchor the security of the Stacks 2.0 chain uh, to Bitcoin. And that's the proof of transfer mechanism where if you are a, if you are a miner, if you're a stacks miner, right? So your incentives are that you're doing work for the network, you're, mm-hmm. you're uh, processing transactions, you're collecting transaction fees, you're processing our uh, new smart contract language is called clarity. So you're, you're, uh, you're collecting execution fees for clarity contracts. You are getting the newly minted stacks tokens. So for this work, you're, you're getting paid right from the network. And you write the blocks for the new Stacks blockchain. Right. So that's but you but you participate in consensus by sending these Bitcoin transactions that are formatted in a certain way. They're completely valid Bitcoin transactions, uh, to indicate that I want to participate in leader election. And you know one of them gets selected as a leader who does the work. And the interesting thing we did there was, uh, you know, going back to you don't have to burn electricity. Your your cost for mining is now represented as Bitcoin. So people would mine if they think they can make a profit uh, because this is my cost of participating and here's what the reward is uh, from, from the network. But, but what they're doing is because the transactions are on Bitcoin, for someone to mess with the security of the Stacks 2.0 blockchain, they will also need to attack the Bitcoin chain. Right? And that is kind of like the aha moment where we feel 
very good about this design decision that instead of starting a smaller proof of work chain, which is now competing for attention from miners, like typical miners with ASICs and, and electricity uh, consumption, uh, instead of competing for their attention, they can keep mining Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. And these new types of miners who express their cost as, as, as a cryptocurrency uh, can participate in the, in the, in the next le- uh, level of mining. So that's that's POX, but then there's a very important uh, kind of like incentive baked in for Stacks holders. So Stacks is the native uh, cryptocurrency. Right. It's used for smart contracts, like fuel for it, for digital assets, for transaction fees and all of that. But the Stacks holders uh, can run full nodes and they can actually signal certain important information on the network about you know what uh, blockchain fork they're on, which is helpful to miners and they earn rewards in Bitcoin. So what's happening is we could have decided that you know, miners are, uh, are mining, but they're just destroying their Bitcoin. That is more similar to people destroying electricity, right? Electricity is being destroyed, new cryptocurrency is being minted. So mm-hmm. we could have, could have destroyed Bitcoin to, to mint new stacks tokens, right? But instead of destroying it, we are actually distributing the Bitcoin to the active stacks holders who are participating in consensus and are helping, right? So it's like, it's like you're trying to create an ecosystem. And what that, uh, what that does on the economic side is, uh, now let's compare to, to staking, right? Where people are putting up their uh, new crypto exactly asset. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're putting up a new crypto asset. There are two differences. One is that they earn the rewards for participating in consensus and staking in the same crypto asset. Whereas over here, you're earning them in Bitcoin. So it's a very interesting interplay between two crypto assets and the synergy between the two crypto assets. Like one, one crypto asset is saying that this is the one you use for Web3 or smart contracts. Mm-hmm. It benefits from the security, right? So you could, you could if you th- believe that in, in you know, standard disclaimers for future forward-looking statements or you know, our SEC offering, people should really look at our website for the full disclosures. But if you believe that, you know, Web3 could be built this way, anchored in the security of Bitcoin. And that, that means that you could treat Bitcoin as a future reserve currency and you could treat Stacks as the fuel for smart contracts and, and Web3 anchored into Bitcoin, right? And because there's an interplay between the two assets, uh, you're, earning, you're earning Bitcoin on, on your Stacks holding, right? And one, very quickly, the second difference from uh, staking is that you're not putting up your your holdings of the Stacks tokens up for slashing, right? So what happens in staking is if you're misbehaving uh, or you're, you're, uh, you end up on a network fork or something, your funds can get slashed as a, uh, as, as a way to keep people honest, right? Over here, your, fu- your funds are not at risk, right? So you are participating, you can earn, earn Bitcoin, but you, your funds uh, can't be slashed. So that brings me, there's a bunch of questions here. So immediately I want to talk about Sybil attacks. So how do you prevent bad actors in Sybil? Yeah, great question, right? So, so mining actually is, uh, uh, exists because you want to um, prevent Sybil attacks, right? So that's why there's a cost to mine. And on the mining side, you prevent Sybil attacks because everyone who wants to participate needs to spend Bitcoin. Right. They're actually distributing Bitcoin to other people. So that's the cost. That's how you deal with civil uh, attacks on the mining side. On the Stacks holders side, uh, you have to produce a valid signature from an address where you have locked up Stacks for a certain amount of time. Let's call it a month. Right. So you're running a full node. You have locked up your, your Stacks for a month. You've 
provide a valid signature that uh, associates a Bitcoin address to your Stacks holdings, right? And you can only have one-to-one mapping over there, right? So you can't earn Bitcoin on on uh, like twice on on your holdings because if you send a new transaction, it will just update your Bitcoin address. You can only, at one point you can only have one Bitcoin address associated with your Stacks And so I want to dive more into working on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so we've talked about this a lot. We've had a lot of people from Bitcoin side. We've had a lot of people from the Ethereum side. We've had other people building other chains and consensus algorithms. And so what I have determined is that Bitcoin has an immediate servants in the, in the world. It is a store of value. You know, it is an asset that has obviously accreted. We hope that it continues. Obviously, the happening is happening in, in about 85 days, give or take. And so it has a value. It has a purpose in the market. It has a purpose in our society. And so the issue, though, when you kind of brought this up, is that it does not have state. You know, Bitcoin does not have state versus, say, Ethereum does. And it also is slow. Um, L1 of the Bitcoin blockchain hovers around five transactions per second. And so as you alluded to, the speed is not necessarily considered a bug. You know, people would think of that as something that is not good. Uh, it is a security feature. But at the same time, when you're building things, when you're building apps on top of it that have to be performant, is that a concern or how do you address that in terms of the transactions per second? I think, I think it's a great question, right? So uh, going, going back to, you know, what has happened since the last time we talked, uh, mm-hmm. we, uh, I think we started the year 2019 with around 27 applications yep. and, and now we have more than 400. I, I know you wow. announced that it's 370 or something, but it's actually now more than 400 now. We're super excited about it. People are... You can't wait six months next time. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think... Uh, uh, great question, and I think this is where our design is fundamentally different. Like, if if there's one thing I could literally just like go around and trying to educate people about, that would be the fundamental design difference between block stack apps and everything else we are seeing uh, in crypto right now. The fundamental design difference is that all of these apps are very dependent on blockchain state. Right? Everything you do results in a transaction at the blockchain there. Right? Like, a, like a Twitter built in, in that sense uh, uh, would require a transaction for every tweet. Right? There's a lot of global state that needs to be maintained uh, in, in most projects. Right? Blockstack is the inverse of that. Blockstack basically says you use the blockchain as minimally as possible. And most of the state is either just local to your computer or your mobile phone or between you and the parties that need to know that, right? So if you're sharing uh, photos with three people, only they need to know this. It's not a global event that everyone in the world needs to know about. But there are global events. Like when I register uh, a username, like let's call it a Twitter handle like Muneeb, Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world needs to agree that my Twitter handle is Muni, right? So that gets registered on the Stacks 2.0 chain, right? But a lot of the stuff happens uh, with with the users, with the clients, and you're not dependent on the blockchain that much. And with the Bitcoin interaction, what happens is that we have separated out transaction confirmation times from finality, right? Finality mm-hmm. is when data can't change anymore, right? So you can get very quick transaction confirmations like in, a, in an order of like just a, just a couple of seconds on the Stacks 2.0 chain and you can make a decision that, oh, I have enough confirmations and, you know, I have some amount of, 
probability that this cannot be reversed. But finality, I think with finality, the way I think about it is finality should really be final. And there is no better finality than Bitcoin's finality, right? Like that is the best guarantee that we have that something is now not going to change, right? So finality of Stacks 2.0 goes in sync with Bitcoin, right? We derive that finality property from Bitcoin. But confirmation times are something that go much faster. And then people can decide that, you know, I can do something at five confirmation. And that means, means something uh, uh, based, based on uh, the model that they're using. But I'll, for scalability, I'll just go back to we just use the blockchain so less mm-hmm. by design that I, I actually think transactions per second is one of the worst metrics to try and optimize because no matter what the rate is, you know, Facebook gets like 3 billion likes in a day, 3 billion. If wow. every like is a transaction on any blockchain, it is not going to scale up, right? A like needs to be a local operation that only impacts the people who knew, need to view that like and not like a global event uh, at, the, at the blockchain there. Wow. So let's deviate a little bit. I want people to hear you said 400 apps now. And if you guys look, we'll give you the, the site blockstack.org slash try blockstack. And you guys will be able to take a look at it. We'll put that in the, the liner notes. Some of the things we initially had talked about were things like graphite. Um, and that was something that was really interesting. Tell us about what you've seen in terms, if you can kind of cluster some of the apps, what are they addressing? What are they building? You know, there's BitPatron, there's BlockVault. What else is there kind of on a cluster basis, you know, as you are seeing this growth here? Yeah. So I think one thing that's happening is in 2019, because of our SEC public offering, uh, we had to operate a little bit like more like a private company, right? Where, uh, you know, we can't share information that broadly there are legal channels we need to use for doing a SEC Form 1U uh, before any communication happens. And, and a big trend now, because, you know, the public offering is largely done, is that we, we are moving more towards operating as an open source uh, project with, with a big community, right? So, uh, so what, what's, what's happening is that our community is moving to using these applications uh, for the community itself, which is super exciting, right? I just had a town hall where the notes for the town hall was actually on this app called Riot Note, so there is a private uh, note-taking application. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are community members who send me, no, they don't send me emails on my normal ac- account. There's an app called Dmail. It's a de- fully-fledged, deep, uh, a decentralized mail account that is absolutely functional. We sh- I, I should, you should try it right after this podcast. So our community members are sending me email on Dmail. And it's an interesting filter because nobody else is, right? So that is the channel that I'm using to stay in touch with the community. And they really like that. And it's a natural filter. Like that's going back to Balaji's view of, you know, only people who contribute and are serious mm-hmm. should be part of the community. So my community in my Dmail account is actually, I, I, can, I, can, I can respond to them much faster because they are the only ones using it, right? Mm. And, 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 so, so, and then there's this app called Mumble which is uh, kind of like a decentralized Slack. And, and obviously, you know, we will use Mumble to uh, do live chat uh, like things. So I think the really exciting part here is a natural organic community around these applications that are users of these applications. And they are putting things together uh, and they're basically effectively just migrating off, off, the, uh, off Web 2.0. And no one can stop it because it's an open source project. 
It's yeah. an open blockchain. And one of the big things like uh, that happened since the last time we talked is that we were, so we, we closed the offering, we raised around $23 million uh, 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 through the token offerings. And then um, internationally, uh, trading also started, right? So they got listed on Binance in, uh, in October. And uh, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, in the US right now, there's no trading market because of securities regulations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but internationally, in different jurisdictions, it's, it is clearly treated as a utility token and more people are uh, getting access to it. They're using it on the network. And one of the things we, we will hopefully see this year is also uh, the launch of the Stacks 2.0 chain, which we are launching it in a way that independent miners are going to come in and execute the hard fork, right? And this is a continuous trend of like moving towards uh, f- uh, like further and further decentralization uh, so that, you know, potentially globally we can open up uh, the markets and, and, and everyone can participate. And so I want to, that's awesome. Um, you know, obviously, as I said, we'll make sure that we have notes in the, the liner for the show about all of that. You and I have had this chat before and I, in light of what's happened over the last few months, and you mentioned you were just hanging out with Balaji about what's happening with this, uh, the virus with COVID-19 and how he's been really uh, talking to a lot of people. We've seen a deterioration, if you will, of trust in centralized power authorities. I think you can kind of say that unequivocally. You know, we've seen videos, we've seen news come out and people are having issues trusting it. And so I'm curious, we had talked about this initially back you know, on our first show about data, about privacy, about trust of these centralized authorities, you know, controlling our digital selves. Are we ever going to break those bonds? Because right now, Gmail versus Dmail, you know, maps versus whatever Dmaps might come out, things of that nature they're all free and they're easy to use. And because they're free, we have become just enslaved by them. It's, it's, if it was nine ninety nine to use Gmail, I don't think you would have that many people using Gmail. If it was a dollar ninety nine, I don't think you would have that many people using Gmail also, but it's free and it's, uh, it's easy. And so this, you know, this idea of breaking the shackles of free, uh, in light of what we've seen recently with this idea of trust being broken or lack of trust in things that are being reported, things that we're seeing happen live, how do you think that's all going to play out for you and Blockstack and the rest of digital assets? Yeah, I think I think this is this is kind of like the the holy grail, right? That everyone is trying to uh, work towards. Where the 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 biggest issue is that uh, there's really a business model behind Web 2.0. And the business model is that products are free. Uh, we will track you, and we will uh, use. We will sell your data and make money on it, right? And people are slowly like, if you like, I remember this project starting in 2013. I remember talking to investors back then, and everyone was like, "Ah, who cares about privacy? Like nobody cares." And now we're at a stage where you know the New York Times has an entire series on just privacy, and some of those articles are scary, like scary for a normal person. When where they go like, "Oh, random companies can actually find out that I was uh, I was you know uh, having some health issues and I was mm-hmm. going to this particular place a lot," or you know uh, people were able to random companies were able to identify. Uh, secret military bases based on uh, soldiers running on certain tracks, 
Mm-hmm. Right? And the amount of your data that gets traded in these dark underground markets, which you know Google and Facebook are fully part of, right? they collect this data and eventually it goes to all these parties, is insane. And slowly, I think as people start realizing that free is actually not free, right? you're paying a large cost in terms of your privacy being leaked, in terms of you know, information about you being sold. And the solutions that we are coming up with are more like, I think eventually people will need to understand that just like uh, with desktop software, uh, you had to pay for to buy a hard drive and have had to pay to make a backup of it. It's not a lot of cost. Data is storing data is not expensive, right? right. Seven bucks would give you, you know, a terabyte on Dropbox, and and but it's yours, right? If it's encrypted and nobody else can see that data, so we are moving to a model where people would pay. Like people have cell phone plans, right? Like you pay $50, $60 for your service. You can pay another $5 attached with your cell phone package for, you know, lots of storage. It's encrypted, fully encrypted in your control. All of the apps are writing data to you, right? So that's, that's the kind of architecture. And then I think the trust thing is I would separate it out a little bit, right? I'll separate this problem from, uh, from basically just this free versus privacy aspect and tracking aspect, right? So trust is like, like Facebook can manipulate your feed or Twitter yesterday uh, banned Pomp, right? And suddenly he's off Twitter and then he came back, right? And he realized, oh, right. my, oh my, I, all my following on Twitter is actually not my following. So it's the control and it, like Twitter was banning certain types of videos uh, around the virus or something, right? So I think what, what I think is, uh, is likely going to happen or would, or might be a good solution in the long term is once we establish kind of like uh, your identity online, right? Like like my, not my Twitter name at Muneeb on Twitter, but my universal login at Muneeb. Mm-hmm. Right? I can have private ones as well. And that uh, and this is how apps on Blockstack work. You just have one username. It works everywhere on every every. Uh, application and there are no passwords, right? So you just sign a message and you log in. You can start building reputation around around that that username or that identity. Uh, like for example, Fred Wilson, one of our investors, mm-hmm. he has a reputation. People, when if he says something, he's putting his uh, reputation at risk uh, to say that thing. All we need to do is verify that the information came from him, right? So in 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 blogging platforms, for example, built on Blockstack, it's super easy to just sign the blog post. So that we know that this this online identity, Fred Wilson, and it, he has attestations around his identity, mm-hmm. wrote this blog post. Right. Same with the video. You could hash it. You could sign it. You can attest that this video is actually coming from this health organization. That's right. right. And and I think that reputation layer is again a very important part of uh, Web three that that I think uh, uh, will need to evolve for 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 this uh, trust aspect. It is absolutely massive. I was, you know, reputation is something that is absolutely incredibly massive. And we talked about it, you know, obviously with some of the different operating systems with, you know, proof of stake, you know, the idea of, you know, creating reputation by stake. And that's not necessarily the best way to do it, in my opinion. You know, just because you have more economic means does not mean that you are a good person or persons. And so staking, I've had, you know, economic kind of issues with. I don't necessarily know if that's a great 
modem for reputation, but you were you hit on it that reputation, especially in distributed and decentralized systems, is incredibly massive. And obviously, I know you guys have been working on it. You alluded to it, you know, with you know the uh, the things that you guys have been building. So. Very fascinating. I know you've got a lot to do, and so it was great to catch up with you. But the last thing that we'd like to do, as you know, um, before we let people find out more about where they can get in touch, is anything that you have read recently, any books or anything that has caught your attention. Hopefully you are, you know, I know you've been busy with POX and the things that you've been putting together the last few months. Anything that you've read recently that was kind of interesting, that resonated, that you told lots of friends and family about? Yeah, I'm I'm rereading this book called True Names. Uh, it's a collection of essays from the uh, kind of like 80s and 90s around what the original crypto community was about, like crypto uh-huh. meanings cryptography at that time. And mm-hmm. they were very separate from the web community, right? And I think one of the things that's happening with this uh, new version of crypto is that it is, um, it is a combination of uh, web and crypto. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm going back to the original texts and then True Names is a very good book about it. And it's interesting that some of some of the problems we are talking about, they were originally talking about these things in the 90s. And I think some of those ideas are very relevant still today. So it's a, it's a great book to read. It's interesting you brought that up that, you know, things that they were bringing up in the 80s, especially the the kind of cypherfunks. You know, I was reading this book about the diffusion of innovation by Everett Rogers, and he talks about the story in around 1600, 1610, give or take, the British Navy was completely decimated by scurvy. And there was a captain who started to experiment. He created control groups and variable groups, and he started using citrus. And he started saying all of the people on the boat that were consuming citrus didn't get scurvy. And so he wrote a scientific paper about it. He gave it to the the, the powers that be. And roughly almost 200 years later, finally, the British Navy implemented having citrus on all boats to prevent scurvy. 200 years. And so it's amazing that, you know, solutions present themselves and you you would think that, especially with technological innovations, that if a solution presented itself, that everyone would be like, oh, wow, we got to do this. But for some reason, we just sometimes do not adapt to it. And our evolution and the diffusion of innovation is incredibly interesting. So Muneeb, thank you so much for coming on. You know I can talk to you for hours about this stuff, and I know you've got a lot to do, but thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing everything about POX and the work that you've been doing uh, lately with Blockstack, and uh, hopefully we can have you on again in a few months and see what else you guys are up to because it seems like you guys are doing a lot. So this was Muneeb Ali, uh, co-founder at Blockstack. Really, really just an amazing person to talk to and get a piece of his mind, and so thank you, and we'll be talking to you soon. Awesome. It's always great talking to you. And yes, definitely, we should, uh, g- g- given how fast crypto moves and how, uh, how much is happening in the Blockstack ecosystem, we should definitely catch up. So take care. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca/slash base layer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Base Layer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter. 
Arca at Arca or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, marketing commentary, videos, and more.